You know, some may say that we've gotten just what we deserved. After all, we're not entirely innocent, are we? And I'm not just speaking of the Bajoran occupation. No, our whole history is one of arrogant aggression. We've collaborated with the Dominion, betrayed the entire Alpha Quadrant. Oh, oh, oh there's no doubt about it. We are guilty as charged. Even I both know that the Cardassians are a strong people. They'll survive. Cardassia will survive. Oh, please, Doctor. Spare me your insufferable Federation optimism. Of course it'll survive. But not as the Cardassia I knew. We had a rich and ancient culture. Our literature, music, art was second to none. Now, so much of it is lost. Space. The Final Frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission, to explore all of Star Trek. To seek out new guests and new opinions. To boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 26 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we offer a spotlight on the Cardassians, my favorite race. To help me in this examination, welcome my guest, Mike Gillis, from Radio vs. the Martians and other podcasts. Hi, Mike. Hey, good to be here. Uh, so we've been in talks for a while about doing this. I don't want to spoil it yet, but are the Cardassians, in fact, uh, one of your favorite uh, species, or is Deep Space Nine one of your favorite shows? Uh, we'll find that out in the quiz. Okay. Let's let the listeners know what your Star Trek cred is. Sure. Basically, I've been a fan of Star Trek since I was a kid. And as a kid, my understanding of Star Trek was I really loved the ships and cool uniforms and space adventures and battles. And there was a cool sense of humor. I liked the characters. But as I got older, I sort of realized how much there was under that initial layer and how much Star Trek had subconsciously shaped my ethics. That a lot of the ways that I felt about the world had been kind of crafted by Star Trek and had been influenced by Star Trek that, you know, we the idea that we should try to understand strange things rather than just shoot at them, that we can build a better world through, like, science and empathy and, and art and that the world that we have now is not a inevitable thing, that we could build something better than this and that the world can be a great deal better. And I've seen a lot of science fiction, you know, from, from that point till current day. And I've always typically been drawn to genre fiction that digs up sort of the ugly parts of, of hum humanity, you know, like George Romero's zombie movies, the planet of the apes, the Battlestar Galactica reboot, where you just like ask those hard questions. And then you look at the consequences of the worst part of people. But Star Trek has always kind of been the opposite of that. It was the carrot rather than the stick. I mean, it looked at that same ugly stuff, but it was about transcending those flaws rather than, you know, like planet of the apes is all about, this is what'll happen to us if we don't get over everything that's wrong with us. And Star Trek is about what we could be if we could finally get over that. And it's like, hey, people, can we 
move past, you know, like war and bigotry and disease and poverty, we could have these awesome velour uniforms and go around the galaxy and uh, just so much more attractive. And I think, you know, as we get more and more dark science fiction and, and sci-fi and fantasy and stuff out there, I think Star Trek's kind of necessary. I think that I want more of that because it can't all be dark. I want that one show that makes me go, wow, I'd really love to live in that future. And that's really kind of what Star Trek was. is It's like aspirational sci-fi. Of course, science fiction is often a reflection of our time. So there's a lot of dystopian stuff in the 70s. There's a lot of dystopian stuff now. Uh, because we are living in the darkest timeline possible. Yeah. But uh, do you think that it also kind of infects the the Star Trek of that era? Do you think, like, is Discovery a bit uh, too dark, or is it that light that you're looking for? I haven't seen Discovery yet. I've been kind oh. of hesitant to. One is, I know in Canada you can just watch it on Netflix. So I'd have to pay for it. but And that's been the one thing. Is if they get a couple more shows, I think they're doing a Twilight Zone with Jordan Peele on, on CBS All Access, I've heard. The combination of those two might get me to pay seven bucks a month. So I do want to try it. I've heard that it's a show that starts very dark and makes a gradual move into the light, and it looks based on commercials I've seen that Star Trek is, you know, Discovery is kind of moving towards a lighter element. Like people sort of want that. They kind of feel, I think I kind of felt this about uh, The Walking Dead in the last few seasons. It's been kind of a fashionable thing to kind of dog on the show. And I kind of figured out it's that reflection thing you talked about too, that when the show is having a big part of its element is that you're seeing your main characters you know, cringing under the heel of this swaggering, crass bully, it feels a little bit too much like real life, and you kind of pull away from it. And maybe people are feeling that way with Star Trek, is that I kind of need... I want to look at these tough issues, but I don't want to feel trapped in them, because I feel trapped enough in the darkest timeline. So maybe there's an element there, because I think that The Walking Dead exodus I've seen, seen kind of comes from that, that part of us that goes, oh, I don't need to feel this in my fiction, too. And I think Star Trek, I mean, it did initially come out in the 60s. That was a very tumultuous time, both socially mm -hmm. and politically. But it sort of looked at those issues with a sense of positivism. I mean, it looked at that you'd frequently have conversations with the Enterprise crew about what humanity used to be like and how we moved past these sorts of issues and that the aliens and cultures they encounter would be Something that reminded them of something of what we used to be. Even the Vulcans themselves are, you know, a metaphor for we used to be this thing and we transcended it and became something else deliberately. I mean, Star Trek, I mean, from first contact, one of my favorite things about the Star Trek universe, it's a post-post-apocalypse. It's about the human species nearly destroying itself in a violent, horrible nuclear war and pulling themselves out of the rubble and building something better and kinder and more altruistic than they ever had before the war. That it isn't, you know, we're going to fight amongst the rubble over garbage and food. No, we're, we're better than we were. And we don't look back to that time before the war as something we want to recapture. We want to transcend it and we want to build something better. And that's kind of what I want. So even with the darkest of the Star Treks that I've seen, Deep Space Nine, it still has that optimism 
that there's a certain amount of pragmatism of working on the frontier and, you know, frustration with the people who live in utopia. But they all have the same goals. We all want to build the same sorts of things. We just have arguments about how to get there. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the, the gray zones as well in Star Trek, because if we're talking about Cardassians later... <laughs> it's all gray. Uh, yeah, it's all gray. <laughs> and, uh, literally yeah, mostly gray. That's true. And mostly from uh, gray episodes of a light show or gray episodes of a gray show. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but what is your favorite iteration of the show? Well, it is Deep Space Nine. You know, I was a huge fan growing up. I mean, I first got into Star Trek through the original series movies. The first piece of Star Trek I ever saw was Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, and then I got into The Next Generation. I had seen some episodes of Deep Space Nine over the years, but it had been something I only saw a, a smattering of. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that... I sat down on Netflix and just marathoned all of Deep Space Nine because I just heard nothing about but how great the show was, and it really lived up to the hype. It's smart. It's challenging. It breaks the mold for a lot of what Star Trek had done, the sort of model of we travel to a place that sort of exists as a metaphor for something about the human condition or our history or our species, our culture. And the Enterprise crew does something to set it right, whether, you know, Captain Kirk talks a computer that's controlling a civilization into blowing itself up, or Captain Picard has to solve a diplomatic crisis, or has to undo a mistake that they made. And at the end, it always ended with the Enterprise kind of flying out into space again and leaving the situation. It's like, well, you guys have it in hand. We're off to the next adventure. But Ben Sisko doesn't have that. He has to live with the people whose crisis he's dealing with, that he's going to be their neighbor. And because of that, he has to make compromises that Picard never has to make because he has to coexist with these people. I mean, even his entire crew is not made up of just Starfleet people who are all in on things like the Prime Directive and the Federation. So there's a coexistence there, not just with people in the Bajoran militia like, you know, Kira and Odo, but there's there's also people who just live on the station who just want to run a restaurant or a tailor shop and they just or a shipping company and they, they sort of exist on there as people who really don't want to be involved in a mission or a fight or anything. They just want to get by. And I love that element of it that we sort of have to exist with people as part of a community. And that was something that, that uh, Ben Sisko did that you didn't see in Star Trek before or since. And he's really become my favorite Star Trek captain. I mean, he's just incredible. I love Avery Brooks. Is he your favorite uh, character on, the, on any iteration of the show? No, he's really close, though. I mean, I have a huge fanboy crush on Captain Jean-Luc Picard. The Radio vs. the Martians holiday party, we actually call Captain Picard Day. Uh, and there's tons of characters I really love. I mean, there's characters like, you know, Ensign Rowe, uh, Dr. McCoy, Guinan, Barkley, Spock. I mean, I love all of them. But my favorite is Garrick on Deep Space Nine. He is so unlike any other Star Trek character that, and we're going to talk about him a lot in this episode, but he's an exile, but he's not a dissident. He still really believes in the Cardassian Union. He wants desperately to go back, but he's sort of stuck in this limbo, working in a shop surrounded by the people that his species had oppressed for 50 years. He's a spy and an assassin. He's kind of on his own track morally. 
is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Like you had the brackets for the best Trek heroes and you put him on there, but you really could put him on the villain brackets too. Cause I will. <laughs> and he's just, he's such a, an interesting character because he sometimes provides a solution to problems that is going to challenge people morally. But at the same time, he's a friend, but he's a really fun lunch companion for Dr. Bashir. But how much do you trust this guy? You know that he's done terrible things in the past. The other thing, too, is I think he was a big influence on a character like Littlefinger on Game of Thrones, where you have Uh this guy who is indefinitely in a moral gray area, that he has a bunch of stuff that's happening under the surface, that he has a lot of contacts, and he disguises the fact he's a spy by openly acting like a spy. So people tend to underestimate him. That everyone kind of knows that he's a spy. So it's like, well, I'll just openly act sneaky and duplicitous. And people will kind of get lulled into it and thinking it's just an affectation. But he has all this other stuff going on, too. He's just a fascinating character. And I don't think Star Trek's ever tried to do something like him since. Yeah, he creates his own ambiguity. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he pulls ambiguity out of other characters, especially like when you have a character like Dr. Bashir, who's very kind of altruistic. And I just love the fact that Bashir is so interested in being involved in a spy novel that he's so, he's like, oh my God, I get to hang out and I get to have lunch with this guy. And I get to be on an adventure just by talking to him. And it's like, oh, I think I'm his contact. And he's so excited to tell Cisco, oh, don't worry, I won't tell them anything. The Starfleet secrets are safe with me. And But yeah, he's just the guy that everyone knows as a spy, but he actually is. And I, I just love it. Well, that's a good choice. So what is your favorite alien species? That's our last question, but is it the Cardassians? It is. Um, I, I know we're going to spend the entire episode talking about the Cardassians, so I guess for the quiz I'm going to talk about my second favorite, which is okay. the Ferengi. I don't know if anyone's mentioned the Ferengi yet on the show. I think they're much better in Deep Space Nine than they were on TNG, that's oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. I think that's a big part of why I like them so much, is that they were supposed to be the new Klingons. They were supposed to be the new big bad. They had the laser whips and the ships, and they would get into confrontations with the Enterprise crew and they just botched the launch of these characters. They were silly looking they had funny voices, they said things like on," and they were just so ridiculous that it was difficult to find them threatening or take them seriously and Star Trek did something with them that I find fascinating and I've never seen anyone else successfully do this they fixed them without retconning them that they kept everything about them but they completely repurposed their role in the series and found a way to make them work that there's like an episode in late in the series of Deep Space Nine where Quark's mom is kidnapped by the Dominion and he has to go on a secret mission to save her and he brings along you know Rom and Nog but he also brings along Runt who's like this disgraced tax collector and this one weirdo Ferengi who just desperately wants he's like he wishes he was born a Klingon and he just wants to stab somebody and they go on this sort of commando mission and the whole point of it is how ridiculous they are that they are not threatening to the Jemadar that they are not going to get into a straight fight and even Quark says well we do what Ferengi do we just make a deal and they're not the thing that the people who created the next generation wanted, which is a threatening group that's, oh my god, there's a group of Ferengi soldiers coming this way. I mean, you kind of laugh. And they made it work. And I think a lot of it is they have a lot of the same strengths that the Cardassians have, which is representation. That you don't just put the weight of explaining this species on the shoulders of just one actor. That, yeah, you have Quark, 
but you also have his brother Ram, who is kind of bad at being a Ferengi. And you also have uh, Nog, who has a career path that completely veers away from what you would expect a Ferengi to have when he joins Starfleet. And you have all of these characters, including, like, Quark's mom, you've got the Grand Nagus, and when you have, and this is the beauty of representation, that the more people that are represented from a certain demographic, the more nuanced the treatment of that demographic is, because those characters have to be differentiated from each other. And the strength of Deep Space Nine is giving that representation and making these characters interesting and and nuanced. And with the Ferengi, you really see it. I mean, they fixed what was essentially a bad idea. And I'm fascinated by their ability to completely take what was a botched launch and turn it into one of my favorite things in Star Trek. Yeah. Deep Space Nine's strength is exactly that, because you're living at that one spot with consequences, with continuing characters, both starring roles and just featured characters. So yeah, you have to create nuance. And this is something that's going to be uh, part and parcel of the Cardassians' evolution, because they start out as the heavies, but the more you go on, the more, as you say, nuance there will be, and the more empathetic you can be towards the race because they're, they can't all be bad. No. And even the continuing characters have are multifaceted because uh, you're following villains and therefore those villains must have redeeming values. Uh, so yeah, it's the, that kind of show. And that's why the Dominion was created, by the way. So because the Cardassians became a little too uh, nuanced. They couldn't be straight up the bad guys. So we needed new bad guys. And that, ironically... <laughs> threw the Cardassians back into the, the evil pool. And then back out again, too. It was The thing I love about the Cardassians is they're the species in Star Trek that actually has a character arc. That it's not an origin story in the past, but it's this ongoing story that they become one thing, and you see them become another thing by the end of Deep Space Nine. And there's a story there that's uh, threaded throughout their episodes on TNG that, that conclude at the end of Deep Space Nine. And it's fascinating. Yeah, well, let's get into it, Mike. The Cardassians, the old spoonheads. Yeah, the Cardies. They first appeared on Star Trek The Next Generation, the fourth season. Uh, the episode was The Wounded. From there, a couple of notable episodes until Modern Trek essentially builds its first spin-off around an abandoned Cardassian station, Tarak Noor, uh, redubbed Deep Space Nine, putting the Cardassians center stage through most of that series. We're going to talk about their origins, their design, what they mean, and of course, discuss the most interesting Cardassian characters and episodes. So Mike, let's start at the beginning. Uh, the Cardassians as they appeared in The Wounded. Are those true Cardassians? Are they proto-Cardassians? What do you think? I think they hit the ground running. I mean, they are the opposite of what happened with the Ferengi. That The Ferengi, it took a long time for them to organically find it, but I think they knew it right off the bat. I think the only thing they needed to add was the element of what they did to other species. But you had uh, basically an armistice between, not even a peace, but an armistice between them and the Federation. And you had the sense that there was something different about them. They weren't just mustache-twirling villains. That in the character of Gul Maset, who will be played by Marco Lemo, who would go on to be uh, Gul Dukat on Deep Space Nine, there was something different about them. That this is somebody who could be Picard's equal that he was savvy, he could be cultured and intellectual, that he knew how to play a subtle game with Captain Picard in a way that 
other species, because frequently the Klingons would just bark at you, and you'd have to have a show of strength to make them back down. You looked at somebody like Gulmaset, and he could actually even cooperate in fairly good faith with Captain Picard. The episode that they were introduced, a rogue Federation Starfleet captain has uh, started attacking science stations and ships along the Cardassian border. This is a guy that uh, O'Brien used to serve with. He's played by the warden from Shawshank Redemption. He's a great actor. And Picard has to is ordered to bring him in, but he's got Cardassian observers, and they work together. And there actually is a, a really good show of growing trust. But at the end, there's that sense that the Cardassians are still, you know, we don't want to threaten a new war, but they really are up to something, that they're not as a government acting in good faith. But Golmaset, within his role as a commander, is acting with good in good faith with Picard. And they are sort of earning each other's trust. Of course, it's shattered at the end, but there is already that nuance that these guys were somehow different, that the episode plays in a lot about uh, prejudice and how O'Brien has to learn how to overcome his prejudice. And it was, a, and even that is much more nuanced than I think we've done with Star Trek before in the past, that if you looked, I think the episode I'd probably compare it to is, what was the one that introduced the Romulans in the original series? In the original, uh, Balance of Terror? Yes, Balance of Terror, uh, where Captain Kirk also confronts a uh, racist ensign on the bridge of the Enterprise because he starts treating Spock like garbage after realizing that the Romulans, who they'd never seen before, looks like a Vulcan. It's a much more blunt version of racism, but the version that we got from O'Brien is somebody who, on the surface, says all the things that he wants to believe about the way he feels about the Cardassians, that the war's over, that... You know, we're not at war with him. I don't have any particular beef with him, but finds that those feelings are there when he's actually standing face-to-face with the Cardassian. And he's really not prepared for those feelings because he himself believes that he's above those things. And he's forced to confront that, and so to do some of the, the Cardassians. And it's, it's again, it's it's much more interesting than I think we would have gotten if we just made that episode with the Romulans. It's a, well, it's just, they are a lot like the Romulans in the sense that they are deceptive. Uh, and you can sort of feel that Galmaset could be Tomalock. You know, the, the same kinds of exchanges where we're not giving away everything, you know, double speak. And, but, uh, it's interesting that the Cardassians had to be created for this story because, Exactly because of where the Klingons and Romulans were at this point. Because the Klingons were supposed to be allies since the Kittermer Accords. So it can't be them having a war that O'Brien would have fought in. Mm -hmm. And they can't be Romulans because the Romulans were uh, isolationists. And they've been isolated for decades. Nobody's seen a Romulan ship and, you know, nobody's seen in their own memory until that episode, The Neutral Zone, in the first season. So it can't be either of those. And originally, the Cardassians were supposed to be one-offs, but I think the strength of the look, the design, certainly. But Mark Alamo's performance just merited that, okay, these guys are impressive, interesting. If we give them that backstory that there's been a, a war in recent memory, you know, it's supposed to be Vietnam, it's supposed to be today, we'd say, watching it, we'd say it's Iraq, you know, or Afghanistan. And the feelings that uh, O'Brien has are those that you would have towards a someone from, you know, an enemy combatant's country, uh, even though there's supposed to be a detente. 
and I guess originally they thought of it as those two, three years between the fall of uh, the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Union. So they, they were supposed to be sort of these Soviets. But I can also relate them to Vietnam. I can also relate them to Iraq. I can also That makes them very, uh, you know, a universal as a symbol of the the kind of relationship that federation is having with these guys and that just made it just rife for more episodes yeah they weren't mustache twirlers they were something smart about them that you know that this guy if picard tried a trick this guy you give you believe very strongly he could see through it and that you have to tread very carefully with someone who doesn't just have a powerful ship but they're smart, they're subtle, they're also politicians and diplomats in the way that Picard is, but they're coming at it from a sort of different view. And I think the second piece of that puzzle came only a season later with the episode Ensign Row, where mm-hmm. they decided to make the, the Bajoran storyline, the, the species that the Bajorans had been occupied by, the Cardassians. And it added that second element, because throughout all of Star Trek history, we've had a lot of alien species bad guys called the blank empire but we never really saw that empire i think the closest we probably saw to it is was it the episode errand of mercy from the original series where the uh enterprise and a group of klingons are basically battling over who gets to build an outpost on organia and they don't know at the time they're dealing with essentially a non-corporeal god race but you actually get to see the klingons talk about what happens to people that are under their heel that they are the sort of people that take you into the town square and shoot you if there's dissidents. They make examples of people that you become vassals and subjects. And the Federation is saying, no, we'll build schools here. We'll do all this. You'll be free. But we also get to build like probably a defense array or something. I think in a lot of ways, the Cardassians are as close to that model as anything I've seen in Star Trek, because we don't know who the Klingons are oppressing or occupying. We don't see who the Romulans are. I mean, not until probably Nemesis that we see them actually have power over another species. But with the Bajorans, you actually put a face on the victims of that kind of government and said, well, it's not just this stalemate where the Federation stops them from doing anything. They control a section of space, and there's other people that live there. And you see them essentially as, I guess you can say they're like the Nazis, they mm-hmm. they are oppressing and rounding up people. They're putting them in sham trials, uh, in forced labor camps. That Terok Nor, which would become Deep Space Nine, was essentially just an ore refinery where Gul Dukat would oversee from his office essentially Bajoran slaves who would probably die fairly regularly um, so that they were essentially being forced to assist in the strip mining of their own planet. Deep Space Nine is about the aftermath of that. It's like an episode of Next Gen might just be about transportation of this or that group of refugees or the transfer of power on a place like Bajor. But Deep Space Nine is about what is the day-to-day after? You know, what are the scars that the Cardassians left on this species? That they became a very different people, the Bajorans, than they were at the beginning. And even in episodes that don't have Cardassians in it, it's like the ghost of Cardassians is all over that series. Well, even the set, I mean, the setting <laughs> yeah, I mean, is all the Cardassian look, yeah. They're using Cardassian technology, and it sort of yeah. leaves a sense that, I mean, Ben Sisko is operating out of Gul Dukat's office. Ensign Rowe is like the second Cardassian episode, and really the origin of Deep Space Nine, because this is the setup for everything 
that Deep Space Nine begins, you know, that's where it begins, uh, that idea and creating the Bajorans at, at the same time. And I would say that there are three major TNG Cardassian stories. They appear in others. But those three are basically the building blocks of every Cardassian story. So you've got the, they were at war with... Uh, the Federation before, there's a, an animosity there that exists in the wounded, and it that builds who are the Cardassians are and what their personality, their basic personality is. And then in the Ensign Row, we learn their history with Bajor, and that, of course, has you know long-term ramifications for Star Trek. And then the third one is Chain of Command, where, I mean, there are four lights. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and that gives the Cardassians that... Orwellian spin that we'll see explored again in Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Uh, they are Orwellian characters. They're, there's the police state and their loyalty to the state above all and all of that, which you could ascribe to the Romulans as well. But the Orwellian unfairness uh, that is part of their culture and character, you know, Chain of Command really shows that up and then we'll see that again in uh, Tribunal, for example, but even in in Garrick's personality, even in the way they run their affairs, yeah. Yeah, the thing with Chain of Command, too, is that it also follows up these episodes by having another really great actor play the Cardassian, which is, of course, David Warner as Golmadred, and you get to see Picard as a prisoner, who an off-the-books prisoner, because he was actually involved in a black ops mission when he got captured. And you get to see what the Cardassians do to somebody when they torture them, that they take them in the room and they try to strip away every kind of identity, every kind of all their humanity, their dignity, and just kind of break them. They dehumanize him and they drug him, they strip him naked even at the end, when it, after a negotiation with Captain Jellico, who I think it's a bad rap, they are forced to release Picard, but you see this moment with Goma Dredd where it's not enough, that he's not there just to get information you know, out of a sense of duty to his superiors. He wants to break Picard, that he just wants to make him cross this line and say, no, there are five lights where there are four. It's It really, you mentioned Orwell, it breaks down to that, that question that uh, Winston Smith was forced for when he was being tortured in that book, which was, you know, the answer to, you know, two and two equals five when the party wants it to be five. And you have to believe it so much that you actually see five. You see Picard go through this, but the most chilling part of that episode, and this is that element that I think gives them nuance, is that Gomadred is sort of calmly having breakfast and Picard is sort of sitting there in a drug daze on this chair. And his daughter comes in, this little girl who walks in and visits her dad at work. And you see Gomadred as like this kind, gentle, loving father who doesn't try even a little bit to hide what he's doing from her. And she's not bothered by it. But it comes really clear this is not the first time she's walked in on him doing that. And it doesn't bother her. It's like the, the result of all that propaganda that she's not... I mean, Picard even brings it up. She, she she just sees an enemy of the state that's being punished by her father, being dehumanized by her father, and it doesn't seem to pierce her innocence. No, they, they'll make the Cardassians uh, very family-driven uh, across Deep Space Nine. The, the entire family lives in the one house, and there, there's a real hierarchy there, and real respect for the elders, And but they are as a society, bringing their children up with the idea of Cardassian supremacy. They're supremacists. Yeah. And that is their whole reality. Uh, there is one line at one point where Dukat says, we landed on Bajor, and obviously these people were inferior to us. 
And it was our our mandate to civilize them, to bring order to their primitive society, that at every level we were superior to them. And they refused our supremacy, and that's where the trouble started. Yeah. So to them, we land there, if you say, uh, oh, uh, great Cardassians... Uh, show us the way, then everything's fine. But the least bit of opposition, the least bit of thinking, no, our culture is uh, legitimate. You know, that's when, well, if you don't accept our rule, then all hell will follow with us. Yeah, we'll talk about this later, but I mean... The chilling part about that is he's basically saying the Bajorans started it. Of course. You have to blame the other ones, right? Because we're perfect. And there's that thing that is in the Cardassians, they don't make mistakes. No. Their justice system makes no mistakes. That And even their justice system is that they're open about it. They don't hide the fact that the verdict of this trial is pre predetermined. And it's a catharsis for the people that they need to see that we don't make mistakes, that bad guys will be punished, and this is just theater so that people can throw themselves begging and crying at our feet. And then we just deny them that because, you know, this is good that people know that the process works. And even when O'Brien gets a lawyer, that lawyer is just there essentially to get a performance out of him for the sake of theater. And yep. it really kind of gets into the heart of, of what they are, which is they're fascists. It's all about the sort of secular worship of the state. The difference between, I guess, you would look at it, the kind of propaganda that comes out of different sorts of autocracy, where you look at when you have sort of an autocratic communist system, they use the word we a lot, that the people in the state are the, are written of as if they're the same thing, that we are doing this, we are doing that. But in fascism, there's a definite separation there, that you live vicariously through the glory and the strength of the state, that the state does this stuff and it is powerful, and you help us round up enemies of the state, and you are powerful because we are powerful. We are pure because you are pure. And it also gets into the rise of the current Cardassian government in Deep Space Nine, which is in the episode where Picard's being tortured, he has this conversation with Gul Madred. Picard says, you were once a peaceful people with a deep spiritual life. And Gul Madred says, what did peace and spiritualism ever get us? And talked about how they had been starving and that they were poor and that you had to fight on the streets for even eggs out of a nest you find. And you'd usually have to fight another kid for them. And this is in their near past within Gul Madred's lifetime. And the military gave them safe streets and full bellies. And the trade-off for that was that you had to go along with never saying anything bad about the state, but also turning a blind eye when the, when the state starts rounding up undesirables. It's Germany again. It is. You know, it's, yeah, it's uh, Germany between the two wars and the, the rise of fascism that their isolation created. Uh, yeah, definitely. And there's a desire to recapture lost greatness, which is always a scary collection of words. And if you think about what they used to be, it sounds a lot like the Bajorans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was always uh, kind of intrigued by the idea that, you know, uh, ancient Bajorans had visited Cardassia, as um, uh, Cisco perhaps proves in Explorers. And what exactly was the the crossover? What what exactly was the exchange between these ancient Cardassians? We're talking about tens of thousands of years, of years earlier, but the exchanges between those two people and their link, uh, which would have been perhaps spiritual, because the Bajorans have remained spiritual. The Cardassians, well, not so much, but that's a recent development. 
Yeah. It's it's also interesting, too, that you can usually look at a Star Trek species and say, well, what is this a metaphor for? Mm-hmm. And I think more than any other species, the Cardassians are us. They're what we could have been, that humanity was also in that place where we were broken and we were starving. You know, the, the Zephram Cochran Earth, we didn't have anything. Cities were leveled. Civilization was just specks hanging on to it. And the Vulcans came. The Vulcans came and we were able to, through technology and cooperation, within a generation, we'd ended poverty and death and all this stuff that had been plaguing the planet for a century. And we were exploring the stars and there was no Vulcans for the Cardassians. What they did right. was essentially autocracy. They're what we could have been if a new order had risen out of the ashes of World War Three. I mean, in a lot of ways, the Bajorans also are in a place like that at the beginning of Deep Space Nine, where their civilization is basically crumbled and they're trying to rebuild from scratch. Except they have the Federation. They didn't break down into a charismatic leader with the military rising up and saying, don't worry, you won't starve anymore. The only thing you have to do is give up your ability to say no. I think that's one of the reasons the Cardassians are so interesting, is that there isn't really a clear, allegorical one-for-one match. Uh, The way that in the original series, uh, the Klingons were obviously the Soviet Union. (laughs) That was pretty obvious that that's what they were supposed to represent, right? Even on through TNG, because then you have Worf on the bridge the same way you had Chekhov on the bridge. You know, it's it's that one-for-one parallel. Whereas the Cardassians... I've, I've likened them a lot to the Nazis, to, to Germany in that era, but with their link to Bajor, you know, it's like Bajor is the, is the promised land. It, you know, there's, there's something to their, the crossover of the culture that they have and the look. To me, the look, and we haven't talked about the design, mm-hmm. but there's something to it that, that feels Egyptian to me. Yeah. Not clearly, but it, it evokes those kinds of so if it evokes the middle east and northern africa then it evokes arab culture this is palestine and israel as well so it's like there's there's so much complexity there so they're they're really pulling from many traditions many historical peoples and events to create the cardassians because we get to see the cardassians so much it's not like an episode a year, you know? Yeah, I think the real strength of, of these metaphors being vague is that it's like the mutants in X-Men. Who do the mutants represent? Well, they represent every oppressed group. They pull elements and images from everything from the oppression of LGBT people. Uh, they pull stuff from, from racism, Black Lives Matter, a lot of those different elements of people sort of sticking up for themselves against a society that doesn't want them, doesn't want to understand them and wants them just to shut up about their oppression. And because it isn't apples to apples with anything, you find so many people who can find themselves in it. And I think that, like with the Bajorans, you could say that they're the Palestinians, but they're also the Jews. They're also every oppressed group. You could see them as being the British and the Indians. You could see them as every group. Yeah, but when we first meet them, they've been basically, many of them have been deported, basically. Exactly. Uh, They're on the run, much like the Jews were. But also, uh, I would um, claim a piece of that as an Akkadian. Akkadians were deported by the British in the 18th century. You, You find our names all over the U.S. now. 
uh, and the um, the Caribbean, because many of our people were the Cajuns, are Acadians that not only were deported, but then walked to Louisiana, where the Spanish culture there had Catholicism, and that's that was important to them. So any displaced people, any cultural genocide, will relate to the Bajorans. Do you think that has has something to play into the fact that? Benjamin Sisko is from Louisiana? You know, it's... I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking. And, I mean, originally when they built Deep Space Nine, uh, the show... They didn't even know it was going to be a Cardassian station. What is in our toolbox and what could be interesting, you know? Even some of the episodes that we've seen with the Cardassians in it were meant for the Romulans. or that, that That's happened. Originally, the Romulans were supposed to be the big bads of Ensign Rowe. Yeah. So imagine that. That different history. Uh, where it's now the Romulans, Bajor would be part of the Romulan Empire. Would we have a Deep Space Nine that's on a Romulan station? That's just weird to think about because, you know, we're so used to it. Let's talk about that design. Let's, because yeah. we haven't, we talked a lot about the culture and we'll get back to it, of course, uh, as we talk about their evolution through Deep Space Nine. But what did you think of the, the look? Originally, of course, they had that padded armor, but then <laughs> the scarab-like armor was soon shown. I mean, the, from their second appearance, they're better dressed. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> really great the sort of carapace that they have the sort of uh, body armor uh it also emphasizes the fact that they've got a very wide neck so they've got a very large uh neck hole in their armor it's also kind of fun when you get to see um garrick wear a turtleneck in the james bond uh episode on the hollow suite mm -hmm. but there's something that's very imposing about them in the same way that klingons have very distinctive armor that there's something about it that that makes them puff their chests out and on their their chests when you do see a cardassian without their shirt on they do have that diamond shape on their sternum and it's just emphasized on their armor it's also very textured like there's these small sort of bumped rivulet sort of things that are on the carapace underneath the main diamond design. I love the way that the shoulder piece attaches and it just makes their upper body look so much larger than it is. It's definitely a look that's there to emphasize physical strength and making them imposing. Um, even their facial structure sort of matches that same sort of built-in sort of structured kind of angular look to it. And really when you look at the armor design, it's there to sort of emphasize the things that are biologically there and imposing on Cardassians and just kind of turn them up to 11. Uh, it's interesting to, to think that uh, Mark Alemo's casting had a lot to do with this because the, the fact that he had a very long neck yeah. made the makeup artist want to, to create that shoulder piece, those, those big scales on the, on the shoulders. And then from then on, you've got to get actors that kind of look like that or can pull that off. So um, just the casting of one actor basically creates a look. Yeah, and he's also the only Golmaset by Mark Alemo in the in the Wounded is the only Cardassian we've seen with facial hair. Yeah, uh, in the the novels, I think you see Golmaset again, and he's the apparently he's the cousin of Golducat. Oh, of course. And uh, he grew hair on his face because he looked so much like his cousin and didn't want to be taken for him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the books very often try to find these little try to win some no prizes uh, that aren't needed. I, I like the look because, as well because it's it's obviously reptilian, but we've seen a lot of reptilian makeups, whether it's the Silurians uh, or, you know, the Homo reptilicus or whatever in uh, Doctor Who or uh, similar makeups in Star Trek as well. Green scales in the face. But this is this is more subtle. So there's less to it than that. So it, it it's not quite... They have that look of a cobra because of that those neck pieces, 
Uh, they kind of look like they're they're looming over you like a cobra, which is also the shape of their symbol and the the shape of their ships. I just noticed that. <laughs> it was. I think I I was looking up stuff on Cardassians, and there were game pieces from I guess a board game for Star Trek, and there was like a card next to a game piece of a Cardassian ship, and I'm like, wait a minute. And I don't know why I'd never piece that together, that the logo for the Cardassian Union is the top view of one of their warships. Because I don't think that the ships, when you see them coming towards you, they're not, I don't know, they don't look great. No. Yeah, that's not the best model ever, because it's kind of got a, I don't know, a sort of weird wing to it, and the big, I don't know, a big gemstone, a big candy crush <laughs> yeah. the, from which they shoot their beams. I wish they could. They should probably trade with the Ferengis. Oh, the Ferengis had a great ship design. Yeah, and they never use them anymore. There is that, but when you see it from the, the top, then you realize it's also the emblem. Then you realize it's also, it has to do with that vaguely Egyptian look because it's an Ankh mm-hmm. kind of thing as well. And it's also, uh, you know, and when you look at the uh, Obsidian Order, uh, symbol, which is a, a corruption of the other. It kind of looks like someone in a hood. Uh, there's like someone in a cloak or something. It seems to be about secrecy. There's a lot to it, and yet it, it is vague enough. So you can interpret it in different ways. While their ships are kind of, mm, they're space stations. Oh, God. Yeah. They love having these like spiky, uh, curved spires on things. You see it on their, you see it on the top of Deep in Space city. Nine in their cities. Yeah. And, uh, the design, I think it, it's probably more ergonomic than what you see on the Enterprise, but one of the things I actually respect the most about Deep Space Nine is that they rebuilt all of these sets. That Think about all the hallways and doors and uh, on-screen displays that they built for Star Trek The Next Generation, and then while they're on this space station, they jettison all of it and create things like these really cool rolling airlock doors and these on-screen displays where the buttons sort of move in a way that looks like it's much more comfortable to use them because they sort of, the buttons curve. And yeah. uh, you have circular view screens on things. You, I mean, it's a definite interesting look. So the the personality of the way that they build stuff is all over the show because the lead characters are using Cardassian technology. Right. It seems to be a lot about negative space or about showing. I mean, the stuff is, isn't trapped inside walls. It's outside the walls. And you have a lot of these, uh, like Deep Space Nine itself, looks like, um, I don't know, the skeleton of something. I know the, the designers talked about a lot about riffing on crustaceans, which if you uh, if you watch Deep Space Nine, you find out a lot about Cardassian cuisine. And a lot of Cardassian cuisine seems to be fish-based yeah. or crustacean-based. Their uh, alcohol of choice is fermented fish juice. So this seems to be a very wet world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, red skies, and it's probably not as wet as, you know, like, Ferreganar, but, I mean, like, Canar, when you see so many pour a bottle of Canar, by the way, I love those bottles, the sort of twisty, mm-hmm. conical, kind of curly hue bottles, I want one of those. The Canar itself is actually looks really viscous, like, when you see, in later seasons, as Damar is kind of getting a drinking problem, that stuff looks like it's pretty thick. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> We're not supposed to think their food is very appetizing, you know, for us. But it's not as scary as, like, Klingon food, where Klingon food seems to go out of its way to be scary, where it's like, oh, that food is moving, and that one looks like it's got a claw sticking out of it, and that's just a pile of worms. And Cardassian food, at least it's like a large egg. I mean, there's yamak sauce, which, as far as I can tell... Goes on everything. Yeah, it goes on everything. Um, It's kind of nice to have a universal condiment, but 
I just my brain goes to soy sauce with that. In the recipe book, they it's a mix of soy and uh, teriyaki, oh, okay. more or less. Yeah, I kind of got a teriyaki kind of vibe from it, and I'm like, yeah, yeah I could put that on something. I, I definitely want to try it. Uh, Hasperot is the alien food I probably want to try the most. I guess it's just a spicy wrap. Yeah, from from Bajor. From Bajor, yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting that they they have distinctive foods, and this is a sort of stuff you pull out of a culture because they appear a bunch of times that you're in close proximity to Cardassian characters on Deep Space Nine all the time that you get pieces of it through not just of the characters like, you know, Dukat and Garrick, but also through Kira, who has a lot of things to say about the Cardassians and even Odo who worked for the Cardassians. Also the contrast. TNG is going on at the same time as Deep Space Nine, and later Voyager will be going on at the same time as Deep Space Nine. So you want a design ethic that makes the show its own thing. Mm-hmm. And so curves instead of angles, uh, you know, ovals instead of squares or rectangles. You want that architecture. Uh, and technology has to have that different look just to make it you would have different props for every show, right? Exactly. The one last uh, design choice that... I mean, we talked about the makeup, but we didn't talk about the spoon. Yes. So the spoon head, what's your thought on this? Obviously, it's a racial slur, <laughs> a spoon head. But what do you think of that object, you know, that iconic, I guess, the most distinctive trait of their makeup? Well, I think iconic says it, is that the thing you always want when you're creating an alien species is to make them iconic, that you can see other actors play them with makeup that's different. You give them a sense of variety. Not all of every Klingon forehead is the same, but you can spot a Klingon. You, you immediately know that character is a Klingon without anything. They could be out of the Klingon uniform. And I think the Cardassians have that too, that you can see a Cardassian tailor and you know that he's a Cardassian. You can see a Cardassian diplomat or lawyer and you can tell they're Cardassian. You don't need the armor. And I think the spoonhead is really fascinating because it, no one else in Star Trek has that look. I think the closest thing to the way a Cardassian look is probably a Denobulan, the Dr. Phlox character. He's probably as close because they have sort of the ridges on the temples the same way the Cardassians do. But no one has the spoonhead and the neck, and I think the combination of those two make them instantly recognizable. And if you notice with uh, female Cardassian characters, either their uh, their spoon is naturally blue or it's a cosmetic, but that there is highlights that are put on uh, on that spoon for aesthetics among Cardassians. What do you think it does biologically? I don't know. I imagine, I think it's on his skull. I don't think it's just flesh. I think that if you saw a Cardassian skeleton, it would still have the spoon on it. There is an answer, a non-canonical answer that I found, which is from the, um, I read these, but I, I had to do research to, you know, I didn't remember it, but the Millennium Trilogy of books. They say it's basically their equivalent of the uh, belly button. So it has something to do with childbirth and how the the baby is disconnected from the parent. Oh. Who knows? I always thought it was like a sensory organ that we don't have, but there was never any reference to 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 the Cardassians having a sense or a different sense that we have. I yeah, don't know. I, I don't think they're like telepaths like the the Vulcans no. are. Um I don't know. Similar to the belly button, which ha- serves no purpose once once you're born. No. It's just a feature on your body that an alien might find strange. It's the same way with the spoon, I guess. We can believe that. And the uh, putting blue on your spoon could be the equivalent 
equivalent of a belly button ring. Yeah. It's just for show. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, let's get into the evolution of the Cardassians, especially the seven-year history of Deep Space Nine, because they do go from the bad guys to the good guys to the bad guys to the good guys, and they fight uh, two wars during that time as well. So before we get into actually... Uh, like different characters that we love. Uh, what about their overall history during this time and how they changed as far as their role in the, the saga goes? Well, they start out as a sort of a defeated occupying force that they, I don't get the impression that the Bajoran militia threw them out. The resistance didn't throw them out. They just had a really cold cost benefit analysis over staying on Bajor or not, and it just wasn't worth it because they'd already strip-mined that planet, that they left as an occupying force that had done everything short of outright genocide, that they were a military power, and by the end of the series, they become the very thing that they did to the Bajorans, and that's a beautiful piece of just narrative irony, that they had the same relationship, that we feel like we can build a positive, self-sustaining relationship with this other species. So we let them come and they oppress us. And we are humiliated under that lash and we turn on them and they almost kill us all. I mean, the Dominion flattened their planet. Their planet probably looks the way that Bajor did at the beginning of Deep Space Nine, where I think they said something like billions of people died. And if you think of that, it sounded like it was something equivalent to like a third of what the human population on Earth is now. If that many people died, and it was like a Dominion breed bombardment from space, or they just flattened it. They became the species that was suddenly being humiliated and told that, no, you're not a partner, you're a vassal. You're getting kicked around, and you have to sort of take it because the alternative is we can just kill you all. Because we own your stuff. That's not yours, that's ours. We let you keep it in a ceremonial fashion, but you are not a self-determined people. You work for us. And if you say no, we'll kill you. And you get to see the evolution of the character Damar under that situation, where he kind of finds himself having to ask for help from Kira in the Federation and has to learn to become the sort of people that he used to try to put down, that he has to become a revolutionary leader. That's a beautiful sort of irony that they're in that place now at the end of the series that the Bajorans started at, except the difference is now they have the Federation and other species to help them in a way that they didn't have that help when the with the rise of their military. And who knows what they're going to become now. And it's because, uh, for people who don't know, uh, they had to go to the Dominion because the, the Klingons decided to wage war on them. So this alliance... Uh, is more or less based on on defense from an aggressor. Uh, so you get the sense that maybe the Cardassians at that point, yeah, when they left Bajor, had to regret it because they lost control of the wormhole that they didn't know was there, that at that point, they were in a waning mode, let's say. Their culture was waning and their uh, military might was waning because the, I don't know, encroaching, the other powers were encroaching. There was nowhere else to expand. You know, they already have like a demilitarized zone, neutral zone situation with the Federation. It's it's like they're being boxed in. Mm -hmm. there, there's that feeling. And those ships that we sort of thought weren't that great. Well, those ships never change. You know, it's, they're stuck with that Galore-class ship all through their existence. So it's like they're not really changing their the way they 
they do things and maybe because they think they're so perfect. We can do no wrong. And so our supremacy prevents us from evolving. We're already the top dogs and we believe it. So we don't, we're not called to adapt the way that other races might be. I, I have that feeling. And so when uh, the Klingons attack, it's like, oh crap, these are the best warriors but we can't admit to that. Yeah. And so they get into these other, this deal with the Dominion, and then the Dominion out-supremacize the supremacists. Yeah. Because the Dominion are zealots. I guess they'd be called a jihad setup if we were doing the allegory thing. Yeah, they worship their leaders as gods. So. And that's not a relationship that Tukat wanted. That's not a relationship that Damar wanted. I think they just wanted a treaty. And what they got was subjugation. And they're kind of going through, Damar especially is going through a lengthy version of the Lando Calrissian, and this deal is getting worse all the time moment. What happens if you say no? This is too far. This is too, this is not what we agreed to. You have no power to stop them. And I mean, it's one thing. There's a reason that they're so hesitant to get into a war with the Klingons or with the Federation is because the Federation or the Klingons can fight back. They have armies and ships and they can fight you toe to toe and they can win. Even if you win, it's going to be costly where it's a very different thing to subjugate the Bajorans who probably didn't even have a military when they went there. I mean, I imagine it was probably a lot like the miniseries of V. Hmm. where you show up and you're like, oh, hey, you're happy to have a cultural exchange with these people. And, you know, hey, they seem to be cool. They seem to be showing us this technology that we're not familiar with. And then they just take you. And they even mentioned that the Bajorans didn't really fight. They surrendered. They didn't have any context for what was happening to them. And they had to relearn that while being under the, the boot heel of the Cardassians. That the Cardassians essentially sort of strip-mined their culture to the point that their belief in the prophets was all that was left of old Bajor. And that's the one part that they didn't allow to be taken away. And even their caste system was thrown away because suddenly we can't afford to only have the soldier group be the ones that are fighting them. We need everyone to fight them because we can't fight them toe-to-toe. We have to fight them as essentially guerrilla fighters or terrorists. And yeah. they kind of changed who the Bajorans were, too. So they're, they're very different people afterwards. And thankfully, of course, the Bajorans got the Federation that when you do fall into that situation, you do need help to sort of pull yourself out of it. Otherwise, the ugliest parts of, of your culture are going to step up and tell you, no, I can fix this really fast, but there's going to be a cost to it. And usually that's your own sovereignty. And Damar wants that a shortcut because uh, the, the, the Bajorans were subjugated for 40 years and developed a, a resistance and all of that. So at the end of Deep Space Nine, when Damar asks for Kira's help through gritted teeth, I mean, he's, he's looking for that shortcut because yeah. he doesn't have 40 years. No. And uh, you also have this moment where, uh, because he's rebelled against the Dominion, the Dominion has his family murdered. And he just loses it and says, what sort of people would murder a person's family? And Kira says, Yeah, Damar, what kind of people give those orders? It's a cold water in the face moment that the Cardassians are forced to actually confront what it is that they did to people because they've always had that upper hand. They're so unfamiliar with not being the master that they really don't know how to be anything else, and they just kind of get flustered by it, and they're forced to actually grow and change. They're forced to confront the fact that they're not perfect. It's just fascinating. Well, let's. Uh, we've talked about Demar, we've talked about Dukat, and we've talked about Garrick, but I guess those are the three uh, great Cardassians. They're the Cardassians that change the most, that we know the most, 
and that represent perhaps different elements of the, you know the leader the the ambiguous spy but also the stooge <laughs> the guy who bought into the loyalty which is, would be Demar all three of them have that loyalty to the state they just manifest it in different ways I think so let's talk about these three guys and uh, then maybe we can mention other Cardassians that uh, we remember well L- let's start with Garrick because he is your uh, oh, your he's favorite awesome. I love Garrick oh man uh, Garrick I don't know if you know this uh, Andrew Robinson who plays him also played the villain in the original Dirty Harry Yes. And uh, when you watch the episode where they go to the other, sort of the sister station to Terraknor, you know, Deep Space Nine, there's this drug that sort of drives everyone crazy because the Cardassians love to leave garbage behind to, to booby trap and hurt people that want to use their stuff. And you get to see a bit of, of Andrew Robinson being the Scorpio killer again when he sort of goes into kill crazy mode. <laughs> That's true. The thing I like about Garrick, though, too, is that he really evades definition for a very long time that you get to see a genuine friendship grow between him and Bashir, mostly based originally out of Bashir's fascination with, oh my god, it's like he's the guy the guy who lives in the neighborhood that all the kids tell stories about. Like, oh, he's probably this and he's probably that. And um, I love Garrick for that. And I love that he is very aware of what everyone on the station says about him and sort of steers into it a little bit. But also, he's not somebody who is an expat. He's not somebody who wanted to leave Cardassia. He still believes in it. He still believes in the system of government, that when he has a cultural exchange with with, uh, Julian Bashir, and he has uh, Julian (laughs) read, was it the never-ending sacrifice? Yeah, that's the one with the multi-generational saga uh, where uh, it's just just people being loyal to the state. Yeah, it's just generation (laughs) after generation generation it really sounds like a cardassian version of alex haley's roots except it's about the overseers rather than (laughs) rather than the slaves but yeah it just seems like that's what this is all about it's sort of about you know adherence to the state loyalty devotion to the state and to anyone other than a cardassian it sounds terribly boring yeah he also mentions some crime novels where uh, the guilty parties are known from the beginning, uh, but the, the, the mystery is finding out just what they're guilty of. Oh, so it's basically Cardassian Columbo. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> it's kind of fascinating. But I also love um, Garrick's response to the Suite game that Bashir plays, where he basically, you can sort of tell from the beginning that Bashir is just sort of, has this childlike giddiness about old classic spy novels. And he goes into essentially Bashir playing James Bond on the Suite. And it's fun watching an actual intelligence operative basically getting to play around in a cartoon world of what the 1960s spy movies thought being a spy was. And his just amusement, I think at that point that this guy's living in a fancy, you know, suite and there's women just throwing himself at it. And I think Garrick says something very slyly like, I was clearly part of the wrong intelligence service. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if if we go by what the show says and believe the the lore of the Obsidian Order, of course they might lie about themselves. Uh, you know, they're supposed to they they so keep watch on their own people that uh, they record every meal that you have. This must be so tedious and boring being part of the Obsidian Order if every if the minutia of everyone's lives is monitored by agents. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and remember the thing they said about Garrick was that he. He said his, his mentor, and later we found out his father, um, said about him is that he had this glee for interrogations. 
And the one that he's most proud of involves him just going into a room and staring at a man for four hours. And the guy just confessed. I mean, that just one that says everything about the reputation of the Obsidian Order we saw in the episode with what they did to Picard, but that you don't even have to do that stuff. You just kind of have to make aware who you are and let them sort of suss it out. It's kind of like the opening scene to Inglorious Bastards, where uh, Christoph Waltz's character knows that this farmer that he's sitting down in this room with knows who he is and knows his reputation and knows what he does to other people. So all I need to do is just be polite to this guy and sort of impose myself on him politely and let him know that, oh, no, I, I know you didn't mean to do anything bad. And in fact, if you gave these people up that you're protecting, you'd be a hero. And having that unspoken threat there that... You do enough awful things, and eventually you probably don't even need to do awful things. You just have to go into a room and stare at somebody. Yeah, and there's a lot of the what we're talking about the Cardassians or Garrick as if he is a humorous character. There's humor there, but you can also tap into that darkness. Uh, you know, improbable cause uh, slash um, uh, the Dias cast, where he he interrogates a friend. Basically, he's made to interrogate someone, you know, so you can go to those really dark places where you see a glimpse of what Garrick used to be like before he was a tailor. Oh, yeah. Um, his wry sense of humor is some of my favorite stuff. Like during the cultural exchange, wasn't one of the things that Bashir gave him Julius Caesar? Yeah, and he he didn't get it. <laughs> he thought it was so unbelievable that anyone could be betrayed. Why wouldn't Caesar just assume that Brutus would betray him? I mean, that's that written into the DNA assumption of duplicity from everyone that he sort of lives in. And whenever he sees a bit of Bashir's optimism become a little bit more cynical, a little less trusting, he almost feels like he watched a, a puppy learn how to do a trick. He's like, oh, I knew you could. Good boy. <laughs> and he's sort of like, he's like, no, people are terrible. And it's sort of the sense that you don't trust everyone, that you just assume betrayal. You assume that, what did he say? Something like there was someone who helped train him who was so annoying that he openly said, I wish I had in invented evidence against him so that we could get rid of him. And his instructor was like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm the one who stopped you from doing that. I mean, there was just... I mean, that was just the way of life that he was accustomed to, just betrayal. Because at the end of the show, he's sort of... I mean, it's implied that he's on the hook for rebuilding Cardassia. So what kind of Cardassia would Garrick rebuild? I don't know. Create? Yeah. I, I, because he's, he's obviously... He's been... And he admits it himself that he's been sort of tainted by Federation values and principles. You know, by living with them all that time. Yeah. And being friends with them. But at the same time, that is his outlook. So do we recreate a Cardassia that is so fiercely loyal to the state, so duplicitous, so, you know, I mean, because that is still his background. It's what he knows. I don't know. Maybe it is sort of a situation like um, the V for Vendetta thing that, you know, I can help break this, but I'm really not the best person to build. That he his job was to maintain a thing that already existed. He wasn't creating anything. He was just keeping the status quo's close to normal as that, but he also was self-aware enough to point out to Kira that what she said to Damar about the killing of your political enemy's children was something that Damar needed to hear. He knew that. So again, he is sort of tainted. I mean, there's that great moment between him and Quark about root beer, you know, the, the speech that I'm mm -hmm. talking about? It's vile. I know. It's so bubbly and cloying and happy. Just like the Federation. 
But you know what's really frightening? If you drink enough of it, you begin to like it. It's insidious. Just like the Federation. Both those characters, they're very similar because they're both businessmen on the promenade. They're both from, let's call them aggressor species, who are in close proximity to, to our heroes and become heroic as a result yeah. and sort of resent it. Yeah. <laughs> they really have to be kind of dragged kicking and screaming. I think my favorite moment with Garrick is also a great Cisco moment. Again, Cisco's the best captain. That's just a statement. Um, yes. The Federation has become aware that the Klingon fleet is going for Cardassia, I believe it was. And they can't tell anybody, not without dragging the Federation into that conflict and possibly starting a war with the Klingons. So they invite Garrick into a top-secret meeting. To take measurements. and On Cisco for a new suit. And just <laughs> openly talk about this stuff in front of him and then let him leave. And he's like, no, no, it's fine, no, Commander. I have everything I need and just leaves because they knew exactly what he would do and they needed him to do it. And eventually he does have that devil's bargain with Cisco to get the Romulans into the war. Oh, uh, you know, yeah. all of that, which is one of the great Cisco episodes. But it's a Cisco episode where the devil on his shoulder is Garrick. Mm -hmm. uh, so to use that character as both an ally and antagonist, brilliant. Yeah, and you're a bit worried. It's like, is Starfleet in doing this stuff and covering it up? Are we becoming a little bit more like the Cardassians? And you know, what's great about Garrick, and I think Garrick is, uh, you're right that he's one of the greatest characters in Star Trek canon. Garrick is the greatest Cardassian character because he's the best talker. And the Cardassians are great talkers. They were great talkers in The Wounded. Uh, Madred is a great talker in Chain of Command. They are great talkers. That was part of the, when I was reading uh, notes on, you know, show notes on the, the Deep Space Nine people talking about Cardassians. That was the thing that made them fun to write. And the thing that, that was part of the casting and the script they get what they call the Cardassian speech. Mm -hmm. And you in every Cardassian-centered episode, there must be a Cardassian speech where they just go off and speak that florid language, that double speak that, that they give. Andrew Robinson and Mark Alamo are great at this, um, both. And it's, it's always been a bit sad to me that like these guys under prosthetics are these iconic characters and evidently great actors. Mm -hmm. You know, everything else they've ever done is bit parts, and you never see them in other roles later, or very little. Though I did see Mark Alemo on an old episode of The Rockford Files I just watched the other day. He was a gas station attendant. Oh, wow, that's a small role. But, uh, you know, he's in, I think he's in A Quantum Leap. I think he's, you know, you, you see them at, here and there, and uh, Andrew Robinson mostly trading off either genre, you know, there, there, there is a genre casting going on. Oh, that mm -hmm. person was a Star Trek uh, actor. So let's get him on our genre show, on our sci-fi show. Exactly. Uh, so he's he's been on uh, you know X Files and all that. So you, you see these actors, but they they're just character actors, guest stars, and they you know I wish we could see them do bigger and more mainstream stuff as well because they are so good. Yeah, I think we're we're at a time now where that's a lot more likely to happen because I think there was kind of gated community of sci-fi television. If you appeared and were really popular on one syndicated science fiction fantasy show, you would appear on all of them. You would also have an appearance on like Walker Texas Ranger or, you know, Xena or there was kind of or the Highlander series. There was all these different shows that were kind of 
existing in that same place. They were probably all filming in like British Columbia, but you could get a lot of them to sort of appear on there, but they would never really break out of it. And it would be strange to see one of them who kind of exists in genre fiction go out of it. Like there's an episode of like Homicide Life on the Street that had an amazing performance by Bruce Campbell on it. But aside from that, you didn't see that kind of actor appear outside of it. And it really is a shame because you're just kind of denying these great performances to these actors who would knock it out of the park. Marco Lemo would be amazing. I wouldn't have recognized him on Rockford if not for the fact that I was used to seeing him undercover as a Bajoran for a chunk of the end of Deep Space Nine. Let's talk about Ducat because oh, uh, yes. Ducat has had quite an evolution. He's been up and down. and So, so what about his evolution as a character? Well, he, he's all over the place. He goes from being sort of a warlord to kind of a Cardassian pirate using a Klingon bird of prey. He becomes a cult leader and a sort of a disciple to these evil gods. I mean, he's kind of all over the place, undercover as a Bajoran. But the thing that I really love about Dukat is that he really doesn't seem to take any of the stuff, the horrible stuff that he does personally, and he doesn't seem to fathom why someone else would. That he could spend a decade grinding Bajorans under his heel. But you have to understand, I had to do it. I had to. And you know what? You should thank me, because what I could have done would have been so much worse. You have no idea the conversations I had with my superiors, where they were just saying, you need to kill them all, and I said no. So where are my thanks? Where's my gift basket? And he doesn't understand why they can't be friends. And he, it seems to be a genuine confusion. It doesn't seem like he's trolling them. If I can turn that off, why can't you? What's your problem? Yeah, it's like sports to him. Yeah. <laughs> I killed a bunch of people. You know what? That's in the past. I can't bring that back. But we're friends now, right? And he has that with both Cisco and Kira. Yeah, I think that his arrogance is really the the big character trait because he sees himself as the hero of his own story, as most most do, I guess. But he sees himself as the hero of his own story. So anyone who basically vilifies him is in the wrong. I mean, what whatever the situation, he was the hero of it. You may you may not recognize this, but yes, I was being helpful. I was being less ruthless than another governor would have been. And, and so, at, at one point, you know, when he's the pirate, when he's going on missions with Kira, whether in indiscretion, for example, or you, you start to think that maybe Ducat is now a hero, that he's been redeemed. But the show very you know returns to the fact that you know this this was Hitler. Yeah. So even though he may be charming at this point, even though he might have just made Kira laugh. For that you see his relationship with his daughter. Yes. Well, of course. I mean, they're, because their families are so strong on Cardassia, then of course there would be affection between father and daughter, even though she was... Half Bajoran. You know, not from the, the actual family, so an illegitimate child. Nobody is a pure monster, but I think Dukat comes very close to it because he is so charming and unctuous. And uh, you want to think that he's a, a good person. You want to think that he's been redeemed. You want to think that he has a point. It's BS. He's kind of performing. I, I just love there's like an oily quality to how he gives these speeches. You're just like, oh, good God. You just think it's so... And I actually had a Ducat moment myself. I mean, I didn't subjugate, you know, millions of people. But last year, I had a sugar ant infestation in my bathroom. And every time I would go in there, there'd be these ants coming out of my sink. And I would squish them with a napkin, and I would spray stuff there, and they would keep coming back. 
and over time I got angry with them. I was angry with these ants. Don't they understand? I don't like doing this. I don't want to kill them. I, I don't want this. Why can't they just learn their place and stay outside? I don't want to do this. I could be so much worse to them than I am. Why can't, and I, and I realized in that moment, it's like, oh, this must be what Goldukat feels like. I'm conflicted about murdering you. I still do it, but I felt bad. <laughs> and, but he's not really feeling bad. It's not bad enough to stop doing it. I mean, he has his own image of himself. In that perfect image of himself, he's the good guy. He is gracious. He is, uh, you know, he's not a murderer uh, because he wants to be. But we know he is. It's just what he says to make himself look better, to think of himself as, as better. And so this, this is a character that will never be, in fact, never is redeemed. That By the end, he sold his soul to the devil, quite literally. Yeah. Those last episodes, when he's uh, he's in Bajoran drag and sleeping with uh, Kai Wynn, and I mean, this is all very, I mean, it makes your skin crawl. Mm-hmm. Uh, this devil's pact between, you know, two of Deep Space Nine's better villains. Oh, God, yeah. And she doesn't know he's Dukat, so it's, it's repulsive oh, on many, many levels. And she already has that same kind of vibe. She's so great. I love Kai Wynn. Man, yeah. That's a perfect casting for Nurse Ratched, by the way. I just thought that was so perfect. It's just that same thing where someone is being outwardly friendly to you, but they're just twisting a knife, and Dukat does the same sort of thing. And, oh, man, I love it. And then we have Damar, who uh, starts life as the sidekick. He's like a lackey who's just a kind of a, he's kind of a glorified extra who just keeps coming back and gets a... A promotion every time, yeah. Yeah, he's doing well for himself, but... I did not expect him to become a great character, and he did. It was fascinating that he went from essentially being just kind of a Mr. Smithers to Ducat to being this conflicted family man who his entire conception of what being a Cardassian is, and he has to become the thing that he used to try to stomp out. And I really do believe that, you know, if we do another next generation type time jump, that there are going to be statues of this guy. He is sort of the Cardassian Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, well, even though we know the truth of his brutality, his role in history will, you know, can be celebrated. Because if when you look at the, the, those three, the three big Cardassians, Damar is the stupid one. Mm-hmm. You know, the other ones are extremely smart, extremely tactical. They do have that double speak where they say one thing and mean another thing and, and at the same time let you think another thing. <laughs> but Damar is blunt, brutal. He's just like the bog standard Cardassian soldier who keeps getting promoted because the guys above him get thrown out. <laughs> yeah. Is essentially what's happening. And uh, his bosses probably don't think that he's a threat either. I mean, he, he doesn't have any vision. So the fact that he becomes the uh, the leader of the Cardassian Union, uh, so to speak, because, I mean, he's got to share the power with the founders. I mean, it's an amazing... I mean, I can't believe that this actor who came in just like with a one line with the, you know, working at a console one time would have expected to ever get that big a role over time. Yeah. It's it's a great use of, of characters is that instead of you know creating a whole new character, they took somebody they already had and made them great and added elements to their personality. And you see him struggle with alcoholism and the humiliations that he has under Wei Yun and the Dominion and he just gets angrier and angrier until he has a breaking point. He's kind of the Cardassian um, O'Brien, because Kalmini also had, you know, just came in, did a a quick one-liner, and then suddenly he's on the show, and suddenly he's getting episodes that are dedicated to him, even though he's not in the opening credits, and then he's 
you know, he gets to go to the spinoff, and the spinoff is in large part based on his story. Yeah. It's the wounded. It, you know, the wounded started the ball rolling that eventually got us to D Space Nine, and there he is on D Space Nine. Yeah, so uh, you know, Casey Biggs playing Damar is essentially <laughs> on that same trajectory. Oh, God, he's great. Um, I did not expect to, to like him as much as I did when I started. I love that kind of surprise, that a character is sort of created organically, that they needed somebody to be in that role, and Ducat is off being the disciple of the Pa Wraiths and a cult leader and a pirate and all this stuff. So I was like, well, who do we have that's in that position? Oh, we've got Damar there, so let's make Damar into something. And it was fascinating watching him become something over time. I loved it. So when I say that each of these characters manifests a different element of loyalty to the state, which seems to be the big cultural impulse of the Cardassians, you know, one is the leader. One wants to change or forge. He wants to be the state. That's Dukat. Mm-hmm. He thinks loyalty to the state, but I am the state, and yeah. I will forge that future, and I will and I will make deals that will change it. And because I made the deal, and I am the state, you know, it's good for the state. Uh, where and then you've got Garrick, who's the expat. He has loyalty to the state, but he sees the state changing. He sees his world in upheaval. And he's powerless to do something or to do anything about it. Or maybe he isn't. I don't know. He's like the protector of the original values of his world because he is outside of it. And he can look at the change and say, well, he's sort of a, you know, conservative about it, let's say. And then you've got Damar. He is not an expat. He does not leave. Uh, he sticks around because he doesn't know anything else because he is loyal to a fault and then has his world is destroyed. He has to fight for his world where the other two uh, have left it. Yeah, I know Garrick returns, but you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, he doesn't want to shape the world to him. He just kind of is happy being a cog in it. That he's not somebody who's going to remake Cardassia. He never was. He was always going to be somebody's, you know, lackey, somebody's uh, second in command. Until suddenly, there's nobody there. He never would have taken that role for himself. He never would have fought to get to Ducat's level because he's happy where he was, because he's doing exactly what he believes. He doesn't seem to until he's forced to have imagination beyond his duty. And in fact, he suffers a lot for it. He deserves it. I mean, he was a, uh, a terrible person throughout the show. I don't feel any uh, real sympathy for Damar, except I do, because all the characters, you know, there there is that moment where they do become kind of heroic and you do feel for them, at least temporarily. I, you know, that's Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Um, the heroes fall and the villains rise, and there, there's a bit of that going on all the time. But yeah, Damar is, you know, suffers for his loyalty because he should have gotten out when he could. Uh, Garrick also suffers from being outside of his society. And there's Dukat, who is too big for that, I think. And, but because at the end, he's a, actually a Bajoran villain. He's uh, with the Pares, and that's an, a whole other, he wants to be the anti emissary. So it's an, a completely different. He's divorced from uh, Cardassia at that point. It's a way for him to raise himself up to Cisco's level. Like, I want to be your opposite. And it's just not good enough for him to be the, the lackey of the Dominion. No, I'm going to work for gods. And uh, he's almost like an evil wizard at the end. And it's like that he – and you know that he would have tried to overthrow them eventually if he'd won. Because that's just who he is. That uh, he's a bit of a poison pill if you take him on as your lackey. That he will turn on you. There's just no question. A true victory is to make your enemies see they were wrong to oppose you in the first place. To force them to acknowledge your greatness. What other uh, Cardassians should we note quickly? 
from across uh, Star Trek? Are there? Uh... There's two that really stood out to me in the episodes I watched. One is Eamon Maritza from the episode uh, Duet. Uh, sure. This is the one. He's a file clerk who worked in a Bajoran labor camp under a notorious Goldar heel. This is a guy who was haunted by the stuff that he had witnessed done to the Majorans, and he didn't say anything and he didn't do anything and just completely spoil the episode. He uh, has himself surgically altered to look like Goldar heel, hoping to be exposed, uh, punished, and executed by the Majorans. One to sort of alleviate his own guilt but also to force the Cardassians to have to confront what they did and the crimes that they committed against the Bajorans. Oh, God, it's an incredible episode. He's uh, played by Harris Eulin, who, when I looked it up, he is the judge from Ghostbusters 2. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did yeah. not... It's The beautiful thing about Cardassian makeup is it really hides actors underneath it. But once I, I looked him up on IMDb, I recognized his voice in that. He's such a great character because he also breaks from this notion that everyone who's a member of this species is totally on board with the mission statement of that species and that you could commit these sort of acts and that no Cardassian would be horrified by this. But he's also the sort of person who doesn't get to be the the hero in the sense that most of us, if we're in his position, would cry into our pillows too. That most of us are not uh, Major Kira. Most of us are not the heroes who are going to put ourselves at risk that way. We would just silently hate ourselves because we don't want to die. I would say the duet is, one, is if you were to watch one Cardassian episode from Deep Space Nine, duet would be it. Oh, it's yeah. not a, it's not about one of the big ones, but it is an important episode. It's the best episode of the first season, which was really struggling to find its way, I think. But Duet, it remains one of the best episodes that Deep Space Nine has produced. Yeah, I, I love it. Another um, Cardassian character I really love is uh, Legate to Kenny Gamore, from, uh, played by Lawrence Pressman in the DS9 episode Second Skin and sure. Ties of Blood and Water. He's a Cardassian Legate. He's a member of the Central Command, who is the father to an Obsidian Order operative who went undercover as a Bajoran, and he hasn't seen her since. And this is an episode where Kira wakes up after being kidnapped and finds herself looking in the mirror at a Cardassian, and she's told that she's that daughter. That the memories that she had of her family, of being in the labor camp, of being in the resistance, all of that are just implanted memories given to her by the Obsidian Order, and that it's time to bring her home, and that she'd been continuing to live as a Bajoran all these years without knowing, that her Cardassian memories were suppressed. And what we learn over the course of this episode is that the Central Command is really suspicious of Takeni Gamore. They think that he has sympathies, and he actually is a leader in the Cardassian dissident movement, and hates the Central Command and thinks they have too much power. But he's in a position, too, where he can be protected from the state. He can turn off the cameras in his house. It's very, again, a 1984 allegory. The members of the inner party can turn those off sometimes. And he can protect his daughter. And, and what he finds is that you see in him a real love of family and especially a love and protectiveness of his daughter that the usual thing to bring back memories aren't working on Kira. And you see the Obsidian Order getting more and more threatening to her. And you really see this guy step up to protect her to the point that he's about to try to sneak her off of Cardassia. And that's what the Obsidian Order wanted all the time. This is just a plot to expose him. And you see this honorable, decent guy who works for a terrible government, who has a position of power and privilege, 
in a terrible government and who uses it to protect other people that are trying to change it. There's a lot of these great characters. I know I'm forgetting a lot of them. Well, I'll throw a bone at fans of Voyager because uh, Seska in that show was uh, a Cardassian. So the last Cardassian that we got to follow in Star Trek canon was Seska, who started life as a Bajoran. She seemed to be a Bajoran character, a member of the Maquis on that ship. And uh, turned out to be uh, Cardassian in uh, disguise. Then, I mean, she treacherously went to the Kazon, and but she was uh, Chakotay's lover for a while. So basically, the character that you know Kira as a Cardassian was supposed to be that Cardassian operative in disguise. It's basically what Cisco was supposed to be—the the real thing. Oh, what was the other one? Uh, Galora Rajal. The, oh, sure. She was the, the scientist. Yeah. The scientist. We actually get to see somebody who isn't just a soldier. This is the thing that I really love about the Cardassian is that before a certain point, every um, Ferengi you'd see would be a merchant, every Vulcan would be a scientist, every Klingon would be a warrior. And I really love the people that are sort of outside of that mold, that you're so used to seeing Cardassian soldiers, that these are a bunch of guys in uniforms that follow Dukat around and look threatening. With Galora, the thing I really love is it also set up a number of things like what does Cardassian flirting look like? And the fact that in Cardassian society, the idea of a male engineer is laughable. That there's just the assumption that men just suck at engineering. So she's incredibly <laughs> dismissive of O'Brien, and he gets dismissive and angry right back at her. And this is apparently how uh, Cardassian courtship goes. So she takes this as a romantic gesture. And it was just kind of a neat episode where you sort of see O'Brien realizing what's happening, that him being short and snapping at her is apparently like sending her flowers. That's how she's receiving that. And you got Tracy Scoggins in the role uh, from the, the latter seasons of Babylon 5. And also Lois and Clark. Yeah, yeah, it was very cool. Uh, I mean, that's the thing I love is that you get to see a card. Oh, the Cardassian lawyer that defended, in quote, scare quotes, O'Brien in uh, Tribunal. What is it? I forget what his name is, but he's apparently the greatest Cardassian lawyer. And the sense that he's never won a case, you know, winning isn't everything. I mean, everyone there serves a state. It was just a neat way of sort of looking at it, of this 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 guy who's like, oh, come on, come on, O'Brien, were you abused? Did you hate your parents? It's like, I just want to give them a good story before we have you put to death. Uh, by the way, the episode with um, Gilora Rajal, it was called Destiny, so if people are looking for it. Uh, any episodes uh, that we want to, uh, that we haven't mentioned, that uh, people should put on their list of Cardassian must I would say go through on Netflix and look for uh, still shots from the episode of uh, Garrick or Dukat. It'll say if it's a Cardassian episode. It's a little harder than with The Next Generation because if you're saying, I want to watch all of the Klingon episodes, that's a lot easier because they're kind of like, okay, the Klingon story begins and ends here. But the Cardassians are so interwoven into the background radiation of every episode of Deep Space Nine that, and also that the show is a lot more serialized. Especially towards the end. I, I can't tell which episode is which of the last ten, personally. So uh, throughout the Dominion War, it's kind of hard to say which which is which, what happens in which. I guess you could, if you wanted to look at some of the evolution of the characters, uh, you could also watch chunks of it. So when the um, Cardassian Dominion Alliance take back Deep Space Nine, there's like a six-episode chunk there. So that's the kind of thing that you could chug through, and you get a lot of Damar and Dukat in there. And then the last ten could be digested as a single 
Yeah, sort of a Netflix season, really, yeah, episodes. I, I would also say a really fun episode is called Our Man Bashir, which has a lot of Garrick in it. It's a very humorous Garrick one, and that's the James Bond episode. If you want to see every member of the cast sort of out of their normal makeup and costume and character, playing bizarre characters, if you want to see Kira as a Russian spy, and <laughs> O'Brien with an eye patch as a henchman, and an amazing um, Avery Brooks playing a Blofeld-type villain. Garrick kind of giving a a contrast to what being an intelligence agent is to him and also being kind of impressed with Bashir when he's willing to do really ruthless things. I really loved it. It's such a great episode. I think the really the best way to enjoy the Cardassians is a bit like we've done. That is to say, the wounded, Ensign Row, Chain of Command, all of these Space Nine. Exactly. Done. <laughs> That's it. Well, I we're running out of time here, so uh, Mike Gillis, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, uh, I host a show called Radio vs. the Martians with my partner Casey Doran. We call it the McLaughlin Group for Nerds. It's sort of a pop culture discussion show where we hang out all the weird warts and all sort of facts about sci-fi and sort of dissect it. We also have a spin-off show called Podcast of La Vista Baby, which is a tribute to the films of actor and statesman Arnold Schwarzenegger. You can find these on RadioVersusTheMartians.com, iTunes, Stitcher, and all the regular places you find podcasts. Yes, well, thanks a lot for spending this time with me because uh, uh, Cardassians are a particular love of mine as well. I think maybe, maybe I've got the casting for it. I always think, well, what, you know, sometimes you look at someone and you say, well, that guy's a Klingon. Uh, I, I might be more of a Cardassian if you were to pick a makeup for me. So. Oh, so you've, <laughs> you've got the neck then. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a tall, gangly kind of person, so I guess the armor would buff me up a bit. I'm too thin for that, but uh, yeah, I just got the posture, I think. Oh, that's good. Sadly, I'm probably one of those blue guys with the seam on his face, with the, like, <laughs> Mott the Barber. That's probably a, me. A Bolian. Yes, a Bolian. That's what I am. Again, thanks. I, I'll let you get on the transporter pad. Uh, you know how it goes. I have to stay here because I've got to do uh, Star Trek news and um, the people's feedback. Oh, excellent. I hope you don't strand in a double of me on a planet somewhere. Remember, the transporters are always safe until they're not. I'm sticking around for subspace transmissions. Thank you, Mike. Uh, we'll be right back after this short break. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVsTheMartians.com. Incoming subspace transmissions. In Star Trek news, the Star Trek franchise as a whole accepted the Emmy's Governor's Award last September 8th. That's 52 years to the day after Star Trek was first broadcast. Given for, and I'm reading this from the Emmy's website, outstanding achievement in the arts and sciences or management of television, which is either of a cumulative nature 
or so extraordinary and universal in nature as to go beyond the scope of the Emmy Awards presented in the categories and areas of the competition. Seems to have taken a while, given that American Idol got one in 2016. Hmm. I can't give you an air date yet for the first episode of Discovery Season 2, but we do have casting news. Young Spock will appear in that series, and of course he'll be played uh, by someone new. Ethan Peck. Uh, he had roles in such fare as In Time, The Sorcerer's Apprentice with Nick Cage, and 10 Things I Hate About You, the TV series. Onward to better things, I guess. I can tell you that Discovery's companion series, Short Treks, starts October 4th, in just two days as the podcast flies. These monthly standalone short stories will debut on CBS All Access. Not sure how they will be delivered in other countries. That's not been announced. The first is a Tilly story entitled Runaway. Things are gearing up behind the scenes regarding the multiple Star Trek TV shows reportedly in development. And to add fuel to the fire of uh, fan speculation, two new titles have been registered with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, which is to say they are possible titles for two of the new shows. One is Star Trek Reliant, the other is Star Trek Destiny. So there was speculation about a Khan-focused show and the Tyrant did command the Reliant for a short while. I don't know if there's a link. And could Destiny be the title of the new Jean-Luc Picard project? It's all too early to tell. And in science news, astronomers have potentially found Vulcan. There's a planet uh, that's been found orbiting in the habitable zone around star HD 26965, which also known as 40 Eridani A. It's the star considered to be the location of Vulcan in Star Trek. The finding comes from the Dharma Planet Survey in a new study. It is twice the size of Earth, but its star isn't too far off our own sun. Now, 40 Eridani A is unofficially considered to be Vulcan's star system. That is to say, there's no canonical reference to it. But it was favored by Gene Roddenberry himself to be the planet's location, and it's therefore identified in both the glossy book of star charts you can get and Diane Duane's novel Spock's World. Good enough for me. On to your feedback. We've got two episodes worth to cover, so I'll try to do this quickly. Uh, the first is episode 24, which was uh, my conversation with Zumi Kanori about the, the Marvel Comics version of the Star Trek. Basically, late 70s, early 80s, based on the motion picture continuity and look. Chris Franklin starts us off and says the series came out before my Trek mania kicked in. I don't even recall seeing these on the stands. Why do I feel like Zoom is going to look for a done-in-one story with gnomes to showcase on his show so he can finish off that list of unused puns? Yes, please don't encourage him. Uh, Rob Kelly says, if only Marvel had held on to the Trek license for another year or two, they would have had Wrath of Khan to work with, and I imagine the book would have been a big hit. I remember seeing Star Trek on the stand sporadically as a kid. I think the issue's gnome cover would have put me off buying it, frankly. But it all ended well, I guess, since eventually the Trek license found a new gnome ugh, at DC who really did a lot of great stuff with it. Uh, Mark Baker writes, as this episode is reminding me that I actually own these issues, or at least scans of them on a DVD-ROM of all Star Trek comics published before 2002. Has anyone ever asked how such a thing could be legal? It looks officially licensed. Yeah, I have the same CD-ROM. Uh, while I copied all of the DC comics to my e-reader years ago, I never bothered to do so with the Marvel comics. I should go back and get those. I imagine the one reason that these TMP-era comics have such negative reputation 
and thus why I've stayed away from them up to now, is the fact that those TMP-era uniforms are so awful looking. Just looking at the scans you've provided on the supplemental page, I can tell it's going to take some effort to work through these. It's a very gray comic uh, for something that's supposed to be essentially space opera. Uh, Ice the D says the GIT Corporation DVD-ROM was indeed a licensed product. Here is the origin of that. The original plan was to include the US and UK newspaper strips too, but licensing talks fell through for whatever reason. Also missing from that collection due to licensing were the X-Men crossovers for Marvel's second attempt at Star Trek comics. I'm generally a fan of the often goofy, sometimes insane, gold key comics, but I don't give the initial Marvel run the same pass. Unlike a sizable portion of the Gold Key run, it's not like the writers hadn't seen an episode of the series. Uh, David S. Gutierrez says, I had one issue from this run that my dad found for me at a garage sale. I was intrigued, but was left cold by it. Truth be told, I haven't really grokked the Trek comics on the whole. But you know me, I'm a harsh critic. That's not going to stop, is it? Uh, Tim Price says, I'm just grateful Zoom didn't point out if Kirk and Spock were turned into gnomes, they'd have a no-mance. It isn't going to stop. Uh, Mike Peacock says, Sometimes I wonder who had the rougher reputation, this or the Marvel Star Wars series, in the eyes of fans. Which, that's that's odd, because I thought the Star Wars comics were beloved. Maybe it's the giant bunnies? I don't know. Uh, at least I found the Marvel Star Trek series an enjoyable, if nonsensical, ride. And it was probably one of the few handful of times the motion picture era was actively expanded upon. Now, if maybe I give it positivity points, I can earn some brownie points from Gene Hendrix. Now, I know brownies are types of domes, so are you, are you doing the shtick as well? Also, if you want to look at more TMP era expansion, a lot of the uh, late 70s, early 80s novels did expand on that era. All I really remember from it is like Spock getting a son and then uh, a Horta serving on the Enterprise. On to episode 25, which was a long, long episode of reviews from myself and some friends covering Star Trek The Next Generation, the first half. So season one through three and a half. Quickly here at fireandwaterpodcast.com, there's a whole lot of discussion about my disappointment at hearing a reused theme as TNGs, uh, many coming to Jerry Goldsmith's defense. Uh, Jeff R. says the idea of families aboard an exploration ship makes complete sense to him as getting lost or stranded is always a possibility and the Enterprise might need to become a generational ship. That's what happens to Voyager. He does concede that the Enterprise as a flagship doesn't really make sense, however. He says, where are its escorts? A couple of destroyers at bare minimum would have been tactically useful dozens of times. And how does it make any sense to keep the flagship at the periphery, doubling the response time to any crisis? For that matter, even non-crisis flagship duties should keep it too busy to do any exploring at all. It does feel like flagship is just... An unofficial, you know, officious title for, for the ship. Uh, Shag says he was happy that Carlos Mucha praised the outrageous Akona because he loves the character too. Guys, I think you just let your, your love of the Rocketeer bleed into your, your love of this character. Santarin makes a good point with how the 20th century was viewed in TNG. He says, I think it makes sense for there to be a little bit of disdain, depending it could be looked at as the most violent century in the Star Trek timeline on Earth. The 20th century has World War I, 40 million casualties, 4 plus years, World War II, 60 million casualties in 6 years, and the eugenics wars, 30 million casualties taking place in the 90s 
and maybe four years. Not to mention the events of the Cold War in the Star Trek universe, and of course, the events of the 20th century led up to the decades of World War III. 600 million casualties in 27 years. So really, I think it's kind of understandable how we are looked at from the point of view of the TNG era people. Very good point. I think it's it's something that Mike Gillis touches on uh, earlier in this episode, that the Star Trek future looks forward and does not want to recapture the past. And a lot of listeners were happy to relive the series through these reviews, uh, thankfully, which made them want to rewatch it from the start. Listeners like Steve Cronin, Ben Perlman, Chris Franklin, and Alan Wright. Thanks to everyone who commented, whether I mentioned your comment or not, uh, who shared, who liked. As usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter with the hashtag FWPodcasts. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. <laughs>